Discourse 6. For the person who prays noetically from the depths of his heart until it aches, that pain brings about in him the feeling and taste of the goodness and sweetness of the Lord. And this goodness and sweetness appears, if I may put it this way, to the inner man simultaneously with ceaseless compunction, which is roused by the words of God, the sayings of Holy Scripture, and every spiritual discourse. Bless Father. O humble monk, ceaselessly repeat the sacred meditation of noetic prayer from the depths of your heart until your heart becomes completely prayer, as iron becomes like fire when it is red hot. Persist in the prayer of the heart until a wound forms within you at the spot where you repeat the prayer. The wound you willingly receive from your forceful prayer, as God is my witness, will become a spiritual fount of divine compunction from which compunction will always flow without any effort. When you reach this spiritual state by the grace of Christ, you will mystically taste the goodness of the Lord. Taste, says the prophet, and see that the Lord is good. In other words, when you mystically, but as if also sensibly, taste the grace of your Lord, you are convinced and clearly understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whose name you meditate, is supremely sweet and beyond all sweetness. O humble one, think about this. From this small amount of grace that you mystically tasted, you understood and were truly convinced that our Lord Jesus Christ is so sweet to your soul, heart, mind, and entire inner person that it is impossible for you to recount his sweetness, even a little, in any way. When the soul leaves the body and goes to its Lord and God to enjoy the good things there, which things no earthly eye has seen, no carnal ear has heard, and no unclean heart has conceived. Then the soul plainly enjoys all those things that are inexpressible for man, seeing its inexpressible and inconceivable Creator and Lord face to face. What kind of joy and gladness will that soul experience? Amen, amen, I say to you, beloved. If someone thought about this very carefully and with great circumspection, his mouth would be silenced like that of a fish, and he would have nothing to say. But let us return to the subject of our discourse. So, thrice-blessed laborer of the gospel of Jesus, when you spiritually experience the mystical taste of the Lord's goodness, when your intellect is watered with the noetic milk of spiritual vision, when your words are pleasing to your Lord, may my words be pleasing to him, and I shall be glad in the Lord, said the prophet. When your heart enjoys the divine and inexpressible mercy of gladness from the Holy Spirit's comfort, when all these things and more happen to you, which things a scribe's pen could not record and portray as they really are, then your intellect becomes inattentive to the prayer, just as a close friend of a king has no great need to carry weapons upon entering the palace and keeping company with his friend, the king. This friend enjoys the delights of the royal table in great peace. For at that time your soul is attentive to the noetic, noetically present spiritual table which divine grace has presented to it, the divine grace that visited the soul and royally greeted it with great favor. Then your soul is solely and completely occupied with God and God's grace, and it rests in the spiritual pleasantness that it inexpressively enjoys at that moment. At that time, O spiritually entertained friend of God, 
By the grace of God, you have reached a great and exalted degree of noetic and spiritual vision, contemplating the noetic honey and honeycomb that your intellect tastes. Then you behold your living Creator and Lord and are flooded with compunction and spiritual rest. Considering and contemplating within yourself how the grace of God activates the immaterial and divine energy in your soul and how your heart is comforted by it, you are filled with compunction and rest. Considering the cheerfulness on the face of your heart within you on account of the spiritual joy that was lavishly poured over it by the grace of God, you shed abundant tears and rest. Considering the perceptible cheerfulness on your face, which you have on account of the inner divine grace that was richly poured into your heart, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering the goodness and kindness of your Lord, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord and God is extremely merciful and loving towards man, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord and God is almighty and all-powerful, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the kingdom of your Lord is a kingdom unto all the ages, and that his dominion is from generation to generation, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the name of your Lord is holy and sweet to his servants, but fierce and bitter to the demons, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord is great and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, to us, that is, who know his divine might, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord is hymned by the angels, glorified by the archangels, and praised by all the heavenly divine powers, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord rides upon the cherubim, flies upon the wings of the wind, and wondrously rides upon the clouds, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the Lord looks upon the earth and makes it to tremble, you wonder at his power and rest with compunction. Considering that the majesty of your Lord is higher than the heavens, you are filled with compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord sits upon his holy throne and that his throne is unto the ages of ages, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the throne of your Lord is in heaven and that his glory is above the heavens, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that everything was made by the word of your Lord and that your Lord created everything by a command, you are filled with compunction and rest. In brief, when your soul is reconciled with God by means of the prayer crushing the heart, compunction pours over you continuously, and God is unceasingly glorified by you for all his wonders and judgments. In all of these things, and the things I have left aside for the sake of brevity, your soul delights, your intellect is pleased, your heart dances, and your body rejoices, just as the faithful servants of a king are delighted, are pleased, rejoice, and dance on account of the great riches, royal magnificence, and bright trophies of their king. And so, according to the amount of sweetness with which you are sweetened by the divine wonders of your Christ, so much does compunction well up from your heart. This sweetness precedes compunction, just as the visitation of divine grace precedes the sweetness. A contrite heart precedes the visitation of divine grace. 
When you are filled with compunction, you are deemed worthy of true divine vision, which comes about when the intellect is caught up to noetic and incomprehensible things, as our divine father Isaac the Syrian says. To our God be the glory and the power unto the ages. Amen. Discourse 7 Concerning when divine grace visits the person praying noetically to God from his heart and what the spiritual signs of this visitation are. Bless Father. Beloved, when you have been praying noetically from your inner depths for a long time, you should know that you will receive a certain unseen divine visitation that means to sanctify your soul, console your heart, and divinely protect all the senses of your body and soul. Sometimes the grace of the Holy Trinity visits you, and you understand this because at the name of the Holy Trinity, that is, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your soul rejoices, your mind is sweetened, compunction sprouts from your heart as from a spring, and your eyes shed burning tears. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Holy Trinity. Sometimes the grace of God the Father visits you with gladness. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and your spirit is sweetened more at the name of God the Father than at the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of God the Father. Sometimes our Lord Jesus Christ visits you. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and sweetness more at the sweetest name of your Christ and all his divine mysteries than at the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the Holy Spirit visits you and flies about you like a pure dove. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and sweetness more at the name of the Holy Spirit than at the name of the Father and the Son. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Holy Spirit. As was said, sometimes you are not filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness at the three names of the Holy Trinity, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes you are filled with greater compunction and sweetness at the name of the Father, sometimes at the name of the Son, and sometimes at the name of the Holy Spirit. Not because the Holy Trinity is not of one essence. That is blasphemy. You are not filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness because when you pray to the Holy Trinity, you do not look equally with your noetic eyes at one nature, the one essence, and the one power of the Holy Trinity, with the same amount of fervency of heart. And you do not call upon the three names of the Holy Trinity from the depths of your heart with equal reverence. For this reason, you are not filled with an equal amount of compunction and sweetness. Therefore, when you offer the Holy Trinity your supplication and worship, you must offer it with the equal amount of extreme honor to each of the three names. You must offer it with the same amount of extreme reverence and the same amount of extreme fervency of heart. For in this way you will be filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are one nature and one essence because the Father is light, the Son is light, and the Holy Spirit is light. In other words, the Godhead is one, and the persons are three. So when you look noetically at the Father with extreme reverence, the Father enlightens you, and you are filled with compunction at the name of the Father. When you noetically look at the Son with the same amount of reverence, the Son enlightens you, and you are filled with compunction at the name of the Son. 
the same thing happens concerning the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be filled with the same amount of compunction at each of the three names of the Holy Trinity, you must do as we have said above. That is, you must reverence the Holy Trinity with the same amount of reverence, honor the Holy Trinity with the same amount of honor, and respect the Holy Trinity with the same amount of respect. For this reason, the Church cries out with a great voice, imploring the single Godhead of the Holy Trinity, saying, And grant that with one voice and one heart we may glorify and praise your most honored and majestic name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever unto ages of ages. Sometimes, when you have been noetically praying from your heart for a long time, the Lady Theotokos visits you with gladness. You understand this because you are flooded with compunction at the various divine names of the Panagia, at her divine and holy words, and at her divine miracles. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Panagia. Sometimes when you have been noetically praying from your inner depths to the saint whose life you have been reading and whose grace you have been contemplating, you begin to shed hot tears because his grace visits you as if you were his co-struggler and a friend of the Lord. When you have been noetically praying from the center of your inner depths, the saints upon whose names you called with a fervent heart invisibly and cheerfully visit you, then your soul is sweetened and your heart is filled with compunction on account of their grace. Sometimes, when you have been praying in, in an aforementioned manner, you receive a mystical and heavenly visitation of divine grace, and you cannot tell which saint it was. You understand that your soul received some sort of divine visitation that day, only on account of some spiritual and noetic signs that occurred in your soul that no tongue can express. And you cannot tell if it was a visitation from God, the Panagia, or some other saint. But if you think about the divine visitation with a compunctionate heart, a pure and innocent intellect, and a calm mind, and if you mystically, fervently, and humbly entreat the person who visited you, it will be revealed to you and made plain with some obvious signs who it was that mystically visited you. The revelation of the mystical and divine visitation happens like this. As you supplicate your unknown and unidentified benefactor, you begin by supplicating and glorifying God. If the visitation was from God himself, the name of God appears sweet to your mind like a drop of honey that drips. This is to be understood spiritually, ineffably into your heart with the same sweetness. The heart drips heavenly tears mystically into the soul, spiritual tears, honey-like tears, sugary tears. The eyes also drip tears onto the face, tears like unto the honeycombed tears of the heart, the sugary tears of the soul, and the sweet tears of the mind. Then the face radiates with light from the noetic ray of spiritual joy. When one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. From these signs you realize the grace of God visited you. But if something like this did not occur at the name of God, the visitation was from one of the saints. As you mystically supplicate all the saints with your mind and a warm heart, you begin with the Panagia and then pass through all the orders of the saints with your mind, supplicating and meditating upon the various ranks of saints. When your mind arrives at the rank to which the saint you visited belongs, 
you begin to experience some spiritual comfort, and certain obvious signs appear that inform you the friend whom you seek and who visited you is near. As you supplicate each saint individually whose life you have read and whose miracles you have heard about, when you say the saint's name that visited you, it becomes obvious that it was that particular saint because of the active energy and obvious signs of rich, spontaneous compunction and spiritual warmth you experience. On the day of the visitation, when you hear the name or the miracles of the saint who visited you, or even if his name happens to pass through your mind, sometimes your heart is filled with compunction, sometimes your eyes are filled with compunctionate tears, and sometimes you are filled with spiritual zeal to emulate the deeds and virtues of the saint. But when that day has passed, the energy of spontaneous compunction departs from you, as does the spiritual warmth you felt. And this happens in the following way. A certain person has a dear friend, and his friend invites him over so that they might enjoy each other's spiritual company. So he goes to his friend in order that they may be glad together. As he is going, he passes by the marketplace that is buzzing with people. There he sees other friends whom he greets with a happy face. However, he is not so overcome with joy that they prevent him from running on to see the friend who invited him over. When he reaches his friend's place, his heart rejoices at the sound of his voice. And when he greets his face to face, his heart doubly rejoices, so much that his eyes fill with tears at the sight of his friend, and he enjoys their conversation and company. When the time comes for them to part company, he becomes sad, but he is comforted on account of the pleasant time they had with one another. At a later date, another one of his friends invites him over, and he experiences the same enjoyment at this invitation. The same sorts of things happen when it comes to the spiritual life. When a saint invites you into his spiritual joy, the saint's visitation and spiritual comfort occurs that day. When that day passes, so does the spiritual comfort. The same thing happens when another saint invites you through his divine visitation into his spiritual joy. The spiritual visitation occurs when somebody, someone's body and soul are distressed, the soul is invisibly distressed by invisible enemies. The body is distressed on account of asceticism or by cruel and evil people. Wherefore, whichever saint is called upon visits the person in a paradoxical way on account of the intimacy shared between the person and the saint because of the common sufferings and temptations endured for the love of the Lord. Indeed, the grace of the Lord visits him with a cheerful look so that he may not wane in his struggle. At other times, divine grace visits him when he is in need without his even asking for it since divine providence knows when it should visit him. Other times, a person calls on God, but he receives no visitation. God does this for the sake of the person because God knows what is best for us far more than we do. But when you, O humble one, call on God and you receive no visitation, do not fret over this, but condemn and criticize yourself, adding that you are not worthy of receiving such a divine visitation. Then, at that moment, divine visitation is not far from you, even if you do not feel it. Divine visitation occurs especially on days when there is a feast of the Lord or the Mother of God, or when the memory of a certain saint is celebrated. The visitation happens to some people mystically and to some 
manifestly according to each person's love and zeal for divine things. When you, O man, especially love and reverence a certain saint, that saint will always remember you and invisibly visit you without your even recognizing his visitation. But he visits you to a greater degree and in a more obvious manner on his feast day when you are exhibiting a more fervent zeal. Likewise, when you have great faith in and fervent reverence for the Lady Theotokos, she will always have care and concern for you. In the day of your distress, she will visit you in an obvious manner, and when it is one of her feast days, she will visit you in an even more obvious way. And when you have the fear of God in your heart, he will always protect you with an encampment of his divine angels, as it says, The angel of the Lord shall encamp round those who fear him, and he will deliver them. In the day of your distress, he manifestly visits you with his divine grace. He visits you to an even greater degree and in a more obvious manner during his holy and venerable feasts on account of his infinite goodness and because you uninterruptedly glorify him. By his visitation, your soul is invisibly called to his mystical table, his mystical rest, and his spiritual joy. On the holy and divine day when you receive a visitation, your soul rejoices, mystically dances, and noetically rejoices together with the noetic spirits. Through the divine visitation, your soul noetically enjoys a portion of the good things that the noetic spirits enjoy in the noetic and divine dwelling places not made with hands of the upper Jerusalem. Together with the soul, your body in the lower Jerusalem of the church spiritually rejoices with your orthodox brethren, just as it says, This is the day that the Lord made. Let us greatly rejoice and be glad therein. To our God be the glory, power, praise, and majesty unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 8 Concerning the person who noetically prays from his inner depths and always abstains from pleasurable foods, when he is fasting his mouth is sometimes sweetened by the prayer, as if there were something sugary in his mouth, or as if he were eating sweet honey, as the prophet says, How sweet to my taste are your teachings, more than honey in my mouth. Bless, Father. O humble monk, there are three things you must always take care to possess. Fasting, self-control, and noetic prayer, if you wish to ever taste of that wondrous sweetness that will inexpressibly sweeten the tip of your tongue. For if you do not employ fasting, self-control, and noetic prayer with all of your will and desire, never hope to experience that wondrous sweetness on your tongue. The wondrous sweetness your tongue experiences is a great consolation from God in order to make you more fervent and zealous in your spiritual work. There are few who enjoy this wondrous and divine sweetness of tongue, and even those who do not experience it all the time, but only sometimes, when the Lord deigns to comfort them. When, however, they actually experience it, they understand what a good thing it is for someone to fast constantly, to practice self-control always, and to pray ceaselessly to Christ with all his heart. Without these things, one will not be able to receive this sweetness into his mouth. This sweetness is indescribable because it is spiritual, and everything spiritual and mystical is indescribable. But in order for someone to understand just a little how it affects the tongue, we say the following. The divine and wondrous sweetness, which indescribably sweetens the tongue, resembles the sweetness of sugar, 
but is also very distinct from sugar. For if you put a little sugar in your mouth, it becomes sweet, but after the sugar has dissolved and you have swallowed it, the sweetness is no longer there unless you eat some more sugar. The noetic and spiritual sugar, however, that the grace of the Lord invisibly places in your mouth and that wondrously coats your tongue is not like this. This sweetness remains on the tongue, and there is no need to taste something sweet repeatedly in order to retain it. The sweetness of God is inexhaustible if you are deemed worthy of it through noetic prayer and pure fasting. When your tongue is sweetened, you experience the sweetness on the tip of your tongue as if a small grain of sugar were placed there. When you feel your tongue becoming sweet, in order to experience this spiritual and divine sweetness even more, you keep your mouth closed. For in this way you will feel that this divine and indescribable sweetness inexhaustibly sprouts from the tip of your tongue as water sprouts from a pipe. If you happen to speak with someone, it will immediately vanish from your tongue. But if you carefully keep your mouth securely closed, your tongue will again surprisingly become sweet. There is a plant whose flower contains natural honey, like honeysuckle. When you pluck the flower from its stem and suck on it, its sweetness is like honey on your tongue. Similar to this is the delight your tongue experiences when it is sweetened by the grace of God. The difference is that the sweetness you receive from sucking the flower goes away while the sweetness of God does not, as long as your mouth remains pure by keeping it from food and drink. For as soon as you partake of some material food, the sweetness of God in your mouth will no longer be vividly experienced for that day. More often than not, the day that you partake of some physical food, the spiritual sweetness disappears completely. The sweetness of the tongue wondrously and uninterruptedly gushes within your mouth when you keep your mouth closed, and with every breath you feel its activity. Sometimes you feel it on your lips, for they too are sweetened from the inside of the mouth, as if they were sprinkled with powdered sugar or had honey applied to them. When you are experiencing this sweetness, O humble one, keep yourself from tasting anything earthly unless it is absolutely necessary. For if you do, you will become inconsolably sad. Let your stomach hunger. Do not give it a thing. For when it is hungry, your mouth is satisfied with the perceptible and imperceptible sweetness of God. But if you give your stomach some physical food, your tongue will be deprived of that wondrous sweetness. When your tongue is sweetened by divine sweetness, do not spit, but swallow your saliva. As you swallow it, and even before, you experience sweetness in your mouth. But if you spit, you will not experience the wondrous sweetness for a little. It was possibly for this reason that a, holy, a certain holy ascetic never spit in his entire life. Above all, as we have already said, keep your mouth securely closed if there is no great need for you to speak, so that you do not regret it later. If you have this wondrous and noble sweetness within you and you need to read aloud something from the Holy Scripture, read it with reverence. As you read, also be attentive to the spiritual sweetness on your tongue, whether it is preserved or not. If it remains, be attentive unto both the wondrous sweetness and the reading. For in this way, you will experience yet another spiritual delight, not on your tongue, but in your mind. Your mind will also be sweetened by the grace of God. After God's consolation has doubled, it will also triple. 
immediately God's consolation will affect your eyes as well. They will gush pure and joyful tears of God's love, which are very sweet to your soul. After you have received God's consolation threefold, then you will receive a fourth consolation from God. For as you are receiving the third consolation, you will simultaneously and noetically see your inner self being invisibly anointed by the grace of the Holy Spirit with the divine mercy of gladness. From this you will become completely tranquil, completely cheerful, and completely joyful. What we are saying is that none of the senses of your soul remains without comfort from the consolation and grace of the Holy Spirit. These things will happen to you if if the ineffable and wondrous sweetness abides on your tongue. But if this sweet, noble sweetness does not remain on your tongue as you are reading, do not despair and seek to eat something, or look to talk, or allow your mind to wander, but keep yourself from all of these. If you do this in a short while, you will once again experience the sweetness in your mouth. That is, the wondrous and divine sweetness will again wondrously sweeten your tongue. Does divine sweetness sprout from your tongue's essence, or does it come from the grace of God when it imperceptibly strikes the tongue and sweetens it? It is difficult to be exactly sure about this. O humble one, even though it seems to you that it comes from your tongue itself, the truth of the matter is that it does not come from the essence of your tongue, but from divine grace that imperceptibly touches your tongue and inexpressibly passes through it. That is why it seems to you that the sweetness sprouts from your tongue itself. There is no need for you to examine this in detail, beloved, because if you do, you will not discover anything more than what was just said. Sometimes, when the divine sweetness wells up within you and inexpressible sweetens your tongue, it seems that the sweetness decreases and that it might completely disappear, but then, surprisingly, your tongue is sweetened again. When you have been deemed worthy of all these things, O humble monk, You are filled with joy and gladness, for then you have no need to eat or drink liqueurs and other sweets in order for your mouth to be sweetened, since the consolation of God sweetens it. The sweetness of liqueurs and other treats is fleeting and does not last, while the sweetness from the consolation of God abides in your mouth for as long as you abstain from the fruits of the earth. When God fed the Hebrews of old with manna, As long as they abstained from the fruits of the earth, they were given the heavenly manna. It ineffably sweetened them. But when they partook of the fruits of the earth, the manna immediately disappeared from them. So if you, a humble one, who have been deemed worthy by the grace of Christ to taste sensibly the delicate and perceptible sweetness, and to have in your mouth the food of angels, the heavenly manna, that wondrous sweetness, if you desire to taste the fruits of the earth, the mystical delight will immediately disappear from you. It is better for you to fast always, practice self-control always, and pray always so that you may always delight in that wondrous sweetness instead of filling your stomach with material foods and thus be deprived of the heavenly and sweet manna. I once observed a hero monk as he was preparing for the divine liturgy. As he was performing the service of the holy proscomity, He suddenly became tearful and could not keep himself from weeping. But suddenly, when he finished the proscomity, he became full of mourning and compunction, and he wept. When he wanted to say, For yours is the kingdom of the Father, and other pronouncements during the service, 
he constrained himself so as not to have so much compunction, and he tried to project his voice even louder so his compunction would not be noticeable. He was also filled with compunction when he read the prayers. As he was reading the divine gospel, so much compunction filled him that his eyes were drowning in tears, and it was plain that he was weeping, for he could not restrain his compunction and tears. There was no one present at that liturgy who was not filled with compunction, unless there was someone as unfeeling in his soul and heart of heart as I am. The priest continued to be filled with compunction, sometimes more, sometimes less, throughout the rest of the divine liturgy, and experienced boundless joy in his soul. When he communed in the immaculate body and precious blood of the Lord, he drenched the holy patent, the sacred veils, and the antimension with his tears. When the divine liturgy was finished, I asked him to be completely honest and tell me why he was filled with so much compunction and why he shed so many tears, especially in front of people, while I cannot even shed a single tear in secret because of my wretched soul. And he, being a lover of truth, both good and guileless, told me the whole truth, saying, quote, My brother, when the service of Orthos was being read, I was constantly and noetically meditating on the name of the Lord in my heart. Toward the middle of the service, I began to taste a lofty sweetness on my tongue that gradually became sweeter and sweeter. At the same time, I noticed a spiritual comfort within me. As time passed and I repeated even more, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. The wondrous sweetness steadily increased on my tongue, and God's consolation grew stronger within me. Then suddenly my heart began to be filled with compunction. After I said the entrance prayers in order to liturgize, the sweetness in my mouth grew, and I felt the consolation of God even livelier within me. I was more easily filled with compunction and to a greater extent. As I was preparing the divine gifts during the proscomitee, I perceived great sweetness in my mouth, and at the same time my heart deeply experienced the consolation of God. Then I could no longer restrain my tears. When I was reading the sacred gospel, I experienced that lofty and wondrous sweetness in my mouth to a greater degree. My mind was greatly sweetened at the same time by the words of the divine and sacred gospel, so that my intellect clearly understood the power, meaning, and spirit of every single word. I was no longer able to hide and restrain my compunction. So I wept like a small child on account of the compunction that filled me and poured out of my heart. I was completely filled with compunction from that moment until the end of the liturgy, sometimes more, sometimes less, from the lofty sweetness that my tongue felt and from the delight that my mind took in the comprehension of the divine words. Hearing these things, I, who am heart of heart, criticized myself from the heart because I never experienced that sweetness on my tongue nor in my soul that consolation. A prayer. Lord, Lord, the sweetness and delight of all your servants who meditate from their heart upon your holy and divine name with reverence, I ask you, grant also unto me to love your name with all my heart and to meditate upon it with great reverence, so that when your grace deigns it, my own tongue will taste the divine and lofty sweetness. For then, Lord, I am sure that together with that wondrous sweetness, the holy light of your divine knowledge will shine within my heart, 
and the eye of my mind will be illumined with the true and perfect understanding of your divine words. When you, Lord, my Creator and my God, cause these things to happen to me, your words will straightway become sweet to my throat and sweeter than honey in my mouth. Yes, my sweet Jesus, I ask and entreat your sovereignty. Sprinkle me, the embittered one, with just a drop of divine sweetness from the great and incomprehensible abyss of your divine and spiritual sweetness. My soul desires your spiritual, divine, and wondrous sweetness more than gold and topaz or any precious stone. And I, your servant, am spiritually sweetened more than honey and honeycomb when I think about it. For you, my Lord, my sweet Lord Jesus, are the indescribable sweetness of all Christians, and to you we offer up glory unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 9. Concerning the extreme exhaustion of the external and internal state of man, which is due to the extreme force of the prayer of the heart and constant fasting, and brings about the sweetness and consolation of the Holy Spirit in the soul and in the heart. Bless, Father. My heart is exhausted, my dear brethren. My insides are weak. My hand is exhausted, and so is my entire lowly and wretched body. And I, the least of all, cannot write in detail about the great benefit, the profound strength, and the unimaginable grace the soul receives from the extreme exhaustion of the heart, which is caused by the intensity of the heart's forceful prayer. Whoever wishes to achieve this extreme exhaustion of the internal and external state of the body, or rather whoever wishes to reach the degree and state of the Holy Fathers, in order for his soul and heart to taste somewhat God's grace in proportion to his exhaustion, two things are necessary, fasting and the prayer of the heart. These two things are for the soul like divine plants that drip honey and sugar, which constantly and wondrously drip every divine sweetness into the soul. I say every divine sweetness because the soul and the heart of whoever practices these two things secretly partakes of every spiritual consolation in his soul and in his heart. In other words, the person who practices fasting and the prayer of the heart feels within him the heavenly and incomprehensible richness and spiritual and secret joy found hidden within the holy and divinely inspired scriptures. He experiences these things not as in a dream or in a mirror. Those who do not practice fasting and noetic prayer only fantasize in their minds that they experience such things. But he feels them in reality in both his soul and heart. He feels them in the following way. When a person who is fasting forces his heart in noetic prayer so much that he experiences pain of heart in his depths, he is then overcome by extreme exhaustion both within and without. The extreme exhaustion powerfully cuts and inverates every external and internal carnal pleasure found hidden within a person's body. Then the person tastes the heavenly and spiritual pleasure within him, as it says, the kingdom of the heavens is within you. The spiritual and heavenly pleasure that is a person mystically tastes within is understood to a greater degree in the following way. As someone says the prayer, of which we have spoken frequently, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, he unquestionably acquires within himself a true and sincere reverence for God and for his divine and wondrous words. Together with that pure and sincere reverence, 
the grace of the Holy Spirit marks the person inside, which is a joy and consolation to the soul and heart of man. For when the grace of the Holy Spirit approaches a pure heart, not only is the soul comforted, but the heart is also wondrously sweetened in an incomprehensible and mystical manner. Just as the tip of the tongue is sweetened when a person prays noetically from the heart for many hours with great reverence and extreme attention to the prayer. Again, we say that the sweetness of heart experienced from the grace of the Holy Spirit is mystical and spiritual, but it resembles the sweetness one experiences sensibly when eating honey or sugar. The soul feels the sweetness of the grace of the Holy Spirit in the following way. When the grace of the Holy Spirit draws near to the soul, the entirety of Holy Scripture appears to the soul like a shady and leafy tree dripping sugar, whose roots are watered and irrigated by the infinite sweetness of Christ. Its branches drip their incomprehensible sweetness into the soul. The heart also feels this sweetness of the Holy Spirit's grace in the following way. When someone feels the grace of the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart, then he also feels a certain divine joy and spiritual comfort at his core, that is, in his bowels. When the heart is comforted, then it is warmed by immaterial and heavenly warmth from the grace of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Christ spoke about when he said, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. After that heavenly warmth has warmed your heart, the great fire of Christ's love ignites in the heart and his desire and eros possess it. Then when the heart simply thinks about its Lord Jesus or Christ's family and friends, that is the saints, it softens and melts from the tears shed for Christ and the saints. And just as a person cannot completely stop water from sprouting from a spring, for when he plugs up one place, it begins to sprout from another. And if he plugs up that place, it sprouts from yet another place. So also it is with the heart. For when the heart is sweetened by God's sweetness, the heart spontaneously weeps within, wondering at the sweetness of grace. At that time, however, if someone else stops the heart's tears by doing the works of the prince of this age, then at the moment that the prince of evil is doing his works, the heart's tears are cut off for a while on account of the sudden wickedness of that hater of good. But if the heart once again becomes watchful and attentive to the grace of God visiting it, it begins to weep as it did before. The heart weeps because when it cries for its creator, it feels the spiritual sweetness of grace together with its tears. This is the fruit of mourning that all the saints possessed in their life, being a pledge of the anticipated inexpressible gladness of the future age. From that moment on, no man or demon can separate the heart from its divine vision and spiritual meditation. And I dare say that not even the angels themselves can separate the heart from its heavenly and noetic meditation hidden in the delight of spiritual joy. This is what the blessed Paul is talking about when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate the heart from the spiritual meditation it has in the grace of God. From the moment that it mystically tasted the mystical joy of divine grace, it understood the original deception and perdition it possessed prior to finding and tasting God's grace. If a poor, unfortunate, wretched, dejected, and despairing man became friends with a king for some reason, 
was dressed in bright and expensive clothes and lived in a majestic and relaxed life in the palace with the king, I ask you, would he abandon that royal life and return to the vomit of his previous unfortunate life? Certainly not. And if this applies to the carnal and external man, how much more to the spiritual and inner man? The heart that tastes God's grace every day and every moment knows the thorny and spiky roads and the nails it used to walk on. But now it no longer pays attention to those things the crafty demon presents to it in the shape and form of leisure. For the heart surely knows that on the road of the enemy there awaits only the soul's destruction, bitterness of heart, and an examination of the conscience. But the heart knows that in the grace of God there exists consolation, joy, and sweetness of soul and heart. For this reason the divine prophet David supplicated God, saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The prophet David knew from the Holy Spirit that if the heart of man is cleansed, he will noetically see God himself within his heart. As Christ said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is why David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And again, being a prophet, he knew that if the Holy Spirit dwelt in a person's heart, he would feel an inexpressible joy in his heart, and the center of his body would become warm, that is, he would experience in his depths an indescribable spiritual and divine warmth, mixed with much spiritual and divine sweetness. For this reason, he said, and renew a right spirit in the depths of me. A prayer. My sweet Christ, I beseech you to renew your good and comforting spirit within me, so that my embittered heart may be ineffably sweetened, and so that both the face of my heart and the face of my body are illumined by the comfort of your spirit. When one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. Yes, my sweet God, I ask you, you who are the delight and the sweetness of my soul, sweeten my heart so that my mind may also be sweetened by the grace of your comfort. O Lord of glory, this is why you are called the Comforter, because you console your friends by the grace of your Holy Spirit, just as you promised, O my God and Lord, who cannot lie. For you, O Lord, said to your holy disciples and apostles, It is for your benefit that I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. For when I go, I will ask my Father to send you another comforter like me. I ask you, O Lord, please ask your Father and my Father, your God and my God, to send this comforter to me, who am nothing and the least of all, and for him to establish me in your love, my almighty Lord and God, as the prophet King says, and establish me with your guiding spirit. O Lord of the mirth of my heart, and Savior of every soul that boldly hopes in you, when the grace of your Holy Spirit approaches my heart and touches my soul, I immediately taste and feel a portion of those unspeakable and eternal good things you have prepared from before the foundation of the world for those who love you. When my heart experiences these things, O oh my Jesus, it is straightway pierced with your love, and immediately my soul is set ablaze with an unquenchable and heavenly eros for you, my Christ. Wherefore, O oh Lord, when you deem me worthy of your holy grace, then I will offer you the praise of my heart like a sacrificed bullock, then, says the scriptures, bullocks shall be offered on your altar. For to you belong all glory and praise unto the ages of ages. Amen.
Discourse 10, Concerning Noetic Prayer, Prayer of the Heart, and Watchful Prayer. Bless, Father. Beloved, when you wish to pray noetically from your depths, let the prayer of your heart imitate the sound of the cicada. When the cicada chirps, it does so in two ways. At first, it softly chirps five to ten times, but then its ending chirps are more pronounced, drawn out, and melodic. And so, beloved, when you pray noetically within your heart, pray in the following manner. First say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, about ten times, forcefully from your heart and clearly with your intellect from your depths, one time with each breath. Restrain your breath a little each time you say the prayer as your heart meditates from its depths on the words. Once you have said the prayer in this fashion ten times or more, until that place within you has become warm, where you meditate upon the prayer, then say the prayer more powerfully, with greater tension and forcefulness of heart, just as the cicada ends its song with a more pronounced and melodic voice. This prayer, which is referred to principally as noetic prayer, is also called prayer of the heart and watchful prayer. When you say the prayer with your intellect and repeat it mystically within you in stillness, using your inner voice, it is referred to as noetic prayer. When you say the prayer from the depth of your heart with great tension and inner force, then it is referred to as prayer of the heart. It is referred to as watchful prayer when, because of your prayer or because of the infinite goodness of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit visits your soul and touches your heart, or you are granted a, div a divine vision upon which your mind's eye becomes watchful and fixed. When you practice noetic prayer and reverently repeat it as you should, and the grace of the Holy Spirit visits your soul, then the name of Christ that you are meditating upon with your intellect becomes greatly consoling and sweet to your mind and soul, so much that you could never repeat it enough. When you practice prayer of the heart and the grace of God touches your heart, that is, when your heart happens upon it, causing it to conceive com compunction as the Lady Theotokos conceived the word of God by the Holy Spirit, then the name of divine Jesus and all of Holy Scripture becomes ineffable sweetness to the heart. And every spiritual notion within the heart, if I may put it this way, becomes a sweet flowing river of divine compunction that sweetens the heart and wondrously makes it fervent in eros and love for its creator and God. Sometimes when you practice prayer of the heart with pain of an enfeebled heart and with sorrow of a humbled soul, then your soul clearly feels the consolation and visitation of the Lord. This is what the prophet says. The Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. The Lord invisibly draws near you when you crush your heart with the prayer, as we said, in order to show you some mystical revelation. He shows you some vision in order to make you more fervent in the spiritual work of your heart. And so, beloved, when by the grace of Christ your soul beholds some vision and is filled with compunction because of your prayer, then you understand that watchful prayer is nothing other than divine grace. It is the noetic and divine vision your mind beholds, your intellect is firmly fixed upon, and your soul watches. And that the divine grace of the Holy Spirit visited your soul, gently touched your heart, and ineffably sweetened your mind, only you can understand and comprehend within yourself. Because compunction ceaselessly flows from your heart as from an ever-flowing spring, 
while your mind experiences an inexpressible sweetness and your soul great consolation. At that moment, your soul possesses some spiritual boldness and mystically supplicates God, its fashioner and creator, saying, Remember me, O Lord, in your kingdom, or some other verse of Holy Scripture. This holy and pure supplication that takes place within the soul has such power that it penetrates the heavens and reaches the throne of the Holy Trinity, before whom it stands like sweet-smelling and fragrant incense. The prophet said about this prayer, Let my prayer arise as incense before you. The God and Trinity receives this holy supplication in an inexpressible and wondrous manner, and the supplication in turn receives the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This fruit, received reverently and modestly, is offered and sent to the soul as a priceless and heavenly gift from the God of all as a pledge of the future kingdom and adoption. The soul that receives the heavenly and divine fruit of the Holy Spirit because of its supplication, that is, from pure prayer, acquires divine love, spiritual joy, peace of heart, and great patience during the hardships and temptations of this age excellence and goodness in everything, unwavering faith, Christ's meekness, and passion-killing self-control. All of these are called fruit of the Holy Spirit. To our God be glory and power unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 11. Concerning how an impure and prideful heart that is the den of Satan and evil thoughts becomes pure, humble, a dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and a fount of good thoughts through contrite prayer. Bless, Father. Beloved, if you want noetic prayer to penetrate your heart and take root in it, fast without ceasing. Abstain from fatty and pleasurable foods. Be careful and wise like the snake, scorning all things of this age. And forgive from your heart every person who troubles you, according to the word of the Lord. Be careful not to be the cause of scandals. Never speak good words and praise about yourself, but always criticize and berate yourself, calling yourself a good-for-nothing, a fornicator, filthy, and accursed, as it is written, those who turn aside from your commandments are accursed. After doing these things and considering yourself a slave and a despicable thing of the earth, then place death itself before you, as if you were going to die that very moment. Then begin to force your heart with the name of Christ, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, very powerfully and forcefully. Do not listen to anything the evil one slyly has to say at that time, during which you have decided to crush your heart with the prayer. For the evil one, being wily and experienced in his evil ways, knows the fruit your soul will produce if you acquire ceaseless synodic prayer. That wickedly scheming, ugly, crooked, and lame-footed devil does everything in his power to hinder your prayer and to confuse you he offers you water from a thousand wells according to the proverb that crooked evil venomous thorny nailed and underhanded devil with his wretched accursed crooked evil venomous and thorny nailed hand presents you with innumerable reasons fears and thoughts in order to impede the force of your prayer but if you, beloved, you love Christ more than gold and your soul more than your body, do not listen to the devil at all. Instead, say the prayer with great force until our Lord Jesus Christ comes to dwell in your heart. 
when Christ has come to dwell in your heart, he himself will be able to heal every disease and infirmity of your soul and body. I will come, he said, and heal them. For when you say the prayer with force, as we stated above, you cry out and call for Christ, the best physician of all, to come to you and heal the incurable passions of your soul. They are called incurable because no one but Christ can heal them. But from where do you know that Christ invisibly comes to your heart and drives its demons away? I mean, how do you know that he liberates the heart from its passions, just as he drove out many demons from Mary Magdalene's heart, freeing it from all its passions? It becomes plain in the following way. As soon as your heart mystically sees its Savior Jesus approaching, all its evil and bad thoughts immediately disappear. At the appearance of meek Jesus, accursed conceit flees and disappears, as the darkness of night flees and disappears at the appearance of dawn and the rising sun. When those evil and ruthless tyrants vanish from your heart, then the gentle and meek King, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes to reign there, and he becomes the heart's true guide and teacher. Likewise, your heart becomes a true follower and disciple of the teacher Jesus. The heart is taught by him to be gentle, modest, wise, compunctionate, compassionate, meek, and humble. As it says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Unless a man's heart is mixed with the restful and peaceful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot achieve spiritual rest and peace. Listen, beloved, it says also somewhere else, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. That is to say, every person's heart is like a treasure chest. If his heart is pure, prudent, guileless, good, and holy, his mouth will speak good and holy words, just as it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But if his heart is corrupt and wicked, his mouth will speak corrupt and wicked words. That is why it is said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, whoever wants to speak spiritual and heavenly words, let him first fill his heart with spiritual and heavenly concerns and thoughts, and then let him bring out from there, as if from some good treasure chest, spiritual and heavenly words. If someone's heart is full of evils, let him first remove them from his heart, as it says, put away the evils from your hearts. Then let him deposit good there, like a precious pearl. Doing this, he will imitate the person who, having a field full of wild trees and thorns, first uproots the fruitless trees and thorns from the field and then sows fruitful and gentle plants. Let the person who wishes to store good treasure in his wicked heart do the same by sowing gentle and fruitful plants in his heart. What is this good treasure, and what is this gentle and fruitful plant that bears fruit in due season, like the prophetic tree that is planted by streams of water? It is nothing else but the name of God. Noetic prayer deposits and roots the most precious treasury of the name of the Lord in the heart of man when it finds a body mortified through asceticism and constant fasting. When the name of Christ has been deposited in the heart, then the heart puts on the clothes of Christ and is clothed in Christ's grace. Rather, the heart is painted with the name of Christ, and the grace of Christ is united with the heart. Wherefore, the heart is in Christ, and Christ is in the heart. 
Christ swallows the heart, and the heart that is swallowed by Christ itself swallows Christ. The name of Christ is like unalloyed silver purified by five thousands of times. So the heart also becomes as pure as Christ's name. Furthermore, the name of Christ is light, and so the heart becomes light. Christ invisibly dwells in the hearts of those who honor, glorify, and meditate upon his name. Where Christ dwells, there also dwells the Father. And wherever the Father and the Son dwell, there also rests the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Trinity is undivided and of one essence. From where, wherever the Holy Trinity dwells and rests, rivers of living water flow, that is, spiritual conceptions and torrents of holy wisdom. The heart that has become a dwelling place and home of the invisible and all-wise God gives birth to and gushes forth instructive, salvific, fruitful, wise, holy, and good words. As it is written, my heart overflowed with a good word. I tell my works to the king. At that time, the tongue cannot keep up with the divine conceptions being given birth by the heart. And so it says, my tongue is the pen of a swift writing scribe. Again, we say, beloved, when your heart is filled with evil thoughts and demonic ideas, like a body full of pus, then you must use a cupping glass to pull out, remove, and cleanse the pus and polluted blood from the heart that has been noetically wounded and beaten by the merciless and noetic thieves. The cupping glass I am speaking about is not the kind that doctors use on the exterior of people's bodies, but the kind used on the inner thoughts of the heart by the doctors of the soul, I mean the practitioners of the noetic prayer of the heart. For if your heart is filled with and weighed down by evil thoughts and soul-destroying fantasies, there is no other way to relieve the heart and heal it except by applying the prayer of the heart to your chest like a cupping glass. Just as the cupping glass is tightly affixed to a wounded body and sucks out all the polluted blood from it, so also the prayer of the heart, when it clings tightly to the inner chest, removes from it all the licentious and evil thoughts and cleanses it. Beloved, you can attempt to implement what I have been saying in the following way. Go, sit on a stool in some place, or stand if you wish, but bend over a bit and incline your head toward your chest. Then begin to say the prayer from the depths of your heart, tugging on your heart with the prayer that is in the middle part of your chest and your inner regions as much as you can. As the prayer tugs on your heart, restrain your breath as much as you can, fixing all your attention on your heart. If you do this, the exterior of your chest will be sunken in as if a cupping glass were being applied to it from within, because the noetic cupping glass of the name of Christ tugs more tightly than a physical cupping glass in order to remove the hidden pleasure of carnal desire from the chest and put another pleasure in its place, namely, the pleasure of spiritual desire. Every person will understand from what I am about to say that the evil desire of a man has the chest as its nest and throne so that it will be able to combat like some skilled and adroit fighter all aspects of the person. As someone says the prayer in the above-mentioned manner, carnal desire immediately departs from him and vanishes completely, just as frost goes away and vanishes because of the sun's heat. As soon as the pleasure of Satan has vanished, spiritual desire appears and takes its place. 
If Satan is not driven from there, and if his filthy throne is not taken away, which is disgusting and obscene thoughts, the pure grace of God cannot come there and establish the bright throne of its divine and spiritual conceptions. Take a castle, for example, which a certain king's enemies and traitors occupy. How can the king occupy his own throne and give orders from there unless his enemies and those who hate him are first driven out and destroyed? Consider also a cobweb-infested and unswept house that is a home for filthy worms and venomous scorpions. How could a splendid king dressed in bright and precious royal robes enter that house and lie down on that garbage and the worms unless it were first to be cleansed and made worthy of the king? The same holds for an impure and filthy heart. How can the splendid and purest bridegroom of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, enter such a heart unless it is first cleansed by his purifying name? To whom be the glory and the power unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 12 Concerning that the person whose heart ceaselessly repeats the prayer is revered and kept unharmed from every sin by the divine angels because God loves him just as he loved God with all his heart. Bless, Father. O monk, you who have left the world and the things of the world and have put on the grace-filled and angelic schema, if you want your soul to be graced and comforted by blessed and divine consolation, be resolved and struggle to acquire within your heart the meditation of noetic prayer. Try as much as you can to write and engrave on your heart the blessed and comforting name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By doing this, the holy angels will revere and love you. They will do this because the angels revere and honor the name of Christ, and so they will revere and honor that place where it is written. When you have written the prayer, which is the name of Christ, on your heart, not only will the angels revere and honor you as a friend of the prayer, but they will also become your lifelong, inseparable friends. They will invisibly accompany you along the roadways. They will protect you at night from nocturnal fear, and they will protect you during the day from the arrows that fly by day. They will assist you with your duties and wondrously strengthen you. They will enlighten you to speak wisely and unhindered when you are asked questions. They will stand and pray with you joyfully during prayer, entreating the Most High on your behalf. They will be your consolation and unexpected rescue during times of danger. You will not see these angels with your physical eyes, but you will feel and know their assistance. But sometimes you might plainly see them, depending on the ability of your soul and the purity of your heart. There will be joy in your soul if you acquire such blessed friends and powerful guardians. These angels are assigned by God to watch over your soul until they present it before Christ its bridegroom as a pure and spotless bride. For just as you, beloved, have cast off every carnal desire and vain concern and have completely given yourself to the study of the prayer and the remembrance of God, so also has God remembered you and claims you as one of his own having written your name in the indelible book of his divine memory. So rejoice and be glad, beloved, just as the Lord says. Rejoice because your names have been written in the heavens. Since your name has been written in the book of life in the same manner used to write his divine name in the book of your heart through ceaseless prayer, God takes special care of you as the apple of his eye, 
having concern for your soul and protecting it from every sin, from everything moving in darkness, from mishap and a demon of noonday. This is because you also indelibly keep his love and remembrance deep within you. One of the fathers had the following to say about this. A certain brother was caught up in ecstasy and saw a great church. In the midst of the church was a splendid and glorious hierarch dressed completely in hierarchical vestments. The splendor and beauty of the vestments was so great that no tongue could relate the beauty and magnificence of that glorious hierarch. All around him were people in dazzling brightness, some of whom were like deacons holding indescribable censers with which they were sensing the blessed and heavenly hierarch, and some were like priests who were standing about him with extreme reverence. They were all wondrous to behold, for not only were their faces shining and venerable, but their priestly vestments were as well. Some were as white as snow and as pure as light. They were so fine and pure that if something like them were to be found here on the earth and they were released into the air, the wind would immediately carry them up high and they would never come down because of their great lightness and fineness. The vestments of some others was another sight to behold that no earthly tongue could express and no mind could comprehend, for there's nothing like it in the world. Others wore vestments that flashed like lightning. Some were standing to the right of the hierarch, some to his left, but they were all standing with great piety and reverence. The blessed hierarch was glorious beyond compare and greatly surpassed all the others in majesty, brightness, and grace, as the splendor of the sun surpasses all other heavenly bodies. The wondrous and incomprehensible hierarch was standing upright and looking towards the east. He was chanting somewhat quickly, with a great and clear voice, a sweet and inexpressible melody. As the monk beheld these incomprehensible things, he was in astonishment, and hearing the sweet sound and delightful melody, he was in wonder. On account of his great wonder, he forgot the words that the heavenly hierarch was chanting, not being able to recall even a single word of everything he had heard, even though he was careful to be very attentive. For he knew that the blessed vision would come to an end, and that those words would be useful to him in his, this life. Finally, having listened and forgotten, he did remember one thing the wondrous and blessed hierarch said with a great voice at the end. He said, as much as someone remembers and loves God, so much does God remember and love him. Then the brother suddenly came to himself and said at that moment he felt a fire within his heart that burned his heart like a lighted torch. As it is written, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us on the road and as he opened to us the scriptures. To him be the glory and the power unto the ages. Amen. Discourse 13 Concerning that if a struggling monk noetically prays to Christ with a contrite heart in times of sorrow and temptation, Christ reveals a divine vision to him that not only spiritually comforts him in his sorrow and gives him sure hope of future good things, but also makes him much more fervent in virtue than he was before. Bless Father. Hear a parable, O monk, about how your soul can have grace and boldness before God. If a brave and courageous man put himself in danger out of love for his king and performed a great feat of valor for the king's glory, would not that king honor him 
with royal and magnificent gifts. Certainly, the king would properly honor him and bestow on him fitting dignity. And if the same person later showed even greater love for the king by putting his life in danger every moment for the sake of the king and gladly were to suffer whatever tragedy and hardship that befell him out of love for the king, when the king saw his good disposition and courageous nature, would not the king bestow on him an even greater honor and higher dignity? Certainly. The king would honor him more so than he would be even more courageous in battle and more steadfast in his love for the king. And if that honored friend of the king proved himself worthy of the honor he received and expressed even greater love for the king by displaying more fervent zeal in dangers and battles, would not the king elevate him to an even higher rank and honor? Certainly. He would elevate him to the highest rank and honor and have him not as a mere and servile friend, but as a, his own dear brother. The king, however, did not bestow the highest honor on the person right away after that first valorous feat. He honored him according to each brave feat and elevated him from dignity to dignity, from glory to glory, from honor to honor, from grace to grace, and from rank to rank, until he elevated him to the highest rank of honor and made him his co-ruler and equal partner in his kingdom. The king did this with discernment and wisdom so that his friend would always remember, no matter how high a rank he achieved, how many trials and dangers he encountered and underwent, that he would live a life worthy of his high office and always offer the rightful respect and obedience to the king. If the king had straightway elevated him to the highest honor, his friend could have become full of pride on account of the great glory and could have felt he received the honor by chance, thereby not honoring his office as he should. Then he would likely lose his glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly and all-wise King, does the same. He richly bestows divine gifts upon the person who sincerely loves him and who joyfully and gladly takes on his good yoke and his light burden. To such a person he reveals various visions and mysteries according to the purity of his heart, and he reveals his divine glory to him, sometimes more and sometimes less, in accordance with his struggle and the extent of his asceticism. His good spirit rests in the person because he keeps his divine commandments perfectly and because of the extreme humility of his heart. And so he endows him with his grace, as the scripture says, the Lord gives grace to the humble. The Lord of glory loves humility so much that when he was in the world, the bodiless one in a body, the invisible one visibly, and unseen in his divinity, he did not cover his holy flesh with the glory of his Godhead, except for a moment at his dread transfiguration. But he was pleased to cover his divinity with his holy flesh, and nothing can be more humble than this. What could ever be humbler? One God, unfathomable, invisible, incomprehensible, boundless, beginningless, everlasting, and all-wise made the heavens, the stars, the angels, the archangels, the earth, the sea, the beasts, the reptiles, the birds, and every other visible and invisible creature. How could such a God accept to put on human flesh over his divinity and serve his creature as if he were his slave? I did not come, he said, to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom.
Therefore, Christ greatly loves the person who imitates his humility and simplicity. Christ not only loves him, but he also receives joy and gladness on account of the person's humility and simplicity. Wherefore, the divine evangelist says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Christ then reveals various sights and divine visions to the person and comforts him with his grace during tribulations and temptations. Indeed, his grace comforts him even more when he sees the person giving a valiant and earnest effort, greatly struggling in his asceticism for the love of Christ. On account of his asceticism, his body is greatly afflicted, but during this time of hardship and struggle, grace suddenly comes upon him and comforts him in his tribulation by its appearance and presence. This comfort comes to him in the following way. Suppose there is a royal man who is a friend of the king and he is at war with the enemies of the king, protecting the king's castles. When he becomes distraught on account of the vicious war, if he happens to receive from the king comforting, encouraging, gracious, and promising letters, he becomes more earnest and courageous in the war because of the hope he has of receiving honor from the king if he comes out victorious. So also is it with the person who suffers trials and hardships for the sake of the kingdom of the heavens. He would become more fervent in his asceticism and receive great comfort if the Lord revealed to him a divine vision during the time of his tribulation. For as soon as the Lord opened the noetic eye of his soul, and as soon as that sincere servant of the Lord saw whatever the heavenly father deigned to show his servant, his heart would straightway leap inside him, ineffably rejoicing, and his flesh would be wondrously gladdened at the appearance of the divine revelation. For this reason it says, My heart and my flesh greatly rejoice in the living God. His heart and his flesh are gladdened because when he invisibly sees the invisible things, it seems that his flesh loses its natural heaviness and becomes light, as if he were some fleshless being. So he rejoices and is glad, and out of his extreme joy it seems that he is mystically and wondrously dancing, as if the world mystically and wondrously danced at the strange and incomprehensible incarnate economy of Christ. For which reason the prophet said, The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like flocks of lambs. From the moment the servant of Christ sees Christ, either as a patriarch celebrating the liturgy, or as a glorious king, or as a beloved friend. He greatly loves the way and the means by which he was deemed worthy to see the Lord of glory. The reason he saw Christ as he allowed himself to be seen was because of the prayer he made to Christ in Zion, that is, inside his heart, with a contrite spirit. The God of God shall be seen in Zion, says the prophet. From the moment Christ appears and the servant's heart sees him mystically, his heart is set on fire with love for God and compunction spontaneously comes to the heart. The seer of divine revelations sheds hot tears, being unable to restrain them, just as wax near a fire cannot but melt. His heart is softened after the appearance of the divine vision and clings wholeheartedly to all of God's commandments. If there's any virtue he wishes to implement, he easily accomplishes it by the grace of God because he has Christ who strengthens him in the good. As the blessed Paul says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. 
Again, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to the zeal and strength acquired by the person who sees a divine vision. There was a king who wanted to rule the world and enjoy every bodily pleasure. Like Sardanapalus and be glorified by all the people, like Alexander the Great. If this king saw for just a moment the least amount of God's glory, he would without hesitation leave his kingdom, the glory of the world, and the delights and pleasures of his bodily appetites. He would put on rough and old clothing and go roaming about the world. As the divine Paul says, among mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, feeding on wild plants in order to enjoy the heavenly and eternal things in the next life, that have been seldom seen in this world. And this is fitting because the divine vision has the unique property not only to distance and remove the beholder of the vision from the things of the world and the delights and pleasures of the body, but also encourages and rouses him in his divine work when he begins to lean toward laziness and indifference. For example, a certain person renounces Satan and deserts the world and the things of the world with all his effort and becomes a monk. At the beginning he serves Christ with much zeal and fervency of heart. But when the evil one's attacks and temptations and tribulations come at him, his heart might grow weak and become fearful. Then his heart's zeal might be drowned in the waters of despair, just like when the apostle Peter saw Christ walking on the sea and was at first eager to go to him. So he jumped into the sea and walked on it as if it were dry land. But when he saw the winds and the great waves going up and down, he straightway became afraid on account of his little faith. And he forgot the word that Christ had spoken to him when he said, Come. Lacking faith, therefore, he began to sink into the sea. But as soon as he said, Lord, save me, Christ stretched out his holy hand and saved him. This happens to whoever goes to Christ by means of divine labor. When someone is disturbed by temptations and tribulations which it is necessary for him to experience in order to prove his endurance, if he loses faith by forgetting the words and consolation of God and his initial zeal and fervor for asceticism begins to drown, but then he cries out to Christ like Peter, Christ's grace reaches out to him and strangely strengthens him with its help that is with some divine vision and his soul's zeal and fervor is renewed. For this reason, it says, your, your youth is renewed like the eagles. It is said of the eagle that when it grows old, its wings fall off. They fall off on account of its age and its weakness. But strangely, by the command of God, it sprouts new wings and the old eagle is renewed. The same happens with the soul of the person who afflicts himself through asceticism and is entangled by the temptations and attacks of the ruler of this age. If this person saw some divine vision and received a visitation during his great distress, then he would not only forget the past labors and temptations, but he would add other new struggles to the former ones. As the blessed Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And someone else says elsewhere, the struggler will renew his strength. When a person bravely and joyfully undergoes temptations, tribulations, and hardships, he receives a divine visitation that makes him more earnest in coming tribulations, attacks, and temptations. Concerning tribulations and temptations, one of the fathers said the following, 
A certain brother was troubled and disturbed by some person, but he did not say anything and endured the temptation joyfully for the sake of the Lord. Being a man and wearing flesh, however, he slowly began to be troubled by thoughts and sorrow. So he sneaked away to a hidden place and prayed to God from the depths of his heart with sadness and bitterness, wetting the ground with his tears and supplicating God for endurance, patience, and forbearance. The Lord consoled him in the following way, and by this consolation made him more patient and earnest. A gentle and sweet sleep suddenly came over him where he had been praying with pain of heart. All of a sudden, it seemed like he was in the middle of a beautiful plain, so large that it seemed as wide as the heavens, and there were also people there, more in number than the stars or the sand of the sea. This is confirmed by what the beloved John the theologian and evangelist says in his Apocalypse. And behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. The innumerable people clothed in bright white that were in that beautiful plain chanted loudly in unison and with wonderful sweetness the verse, which says, As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Alleluia. The brother, surprised by the great multitude and the sweet melody, asked one of them to tell him who they were, why they were dressed in such splendor, and why they were chanting that particular verse. He answered the brother and said, When we whom you see and at whom you wonder lived in the vain world, we passed through the river of tribulations and temptations out of love for Christ. That is why our clothes have become so bright and white. Or don't you know that the, what the theologian who rested in Christ's bosom says about us? Quote, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation we had in the world has now become for us great joy and a cause for boasting because we endured tribulation and temptation for Christ. And so we chant, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Alleluia. A Christian in the world is not clothed with Christ on account of the joys in the world. He is clothed with Christ on account of the tribulations in the world. That is why Christ said, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The Christian who has courage and hope in Christ should be brave and hope in Christ when he undergoes hardships and suffers for Christ, when he is scorned and shamed because of him, and when he is hated and ostracized because of him. For Christ says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He who does not endure such things for Christ, however, is not clothed with Christ, nor does he enter into Christ's joy. After he said these things to him, the brother came to himself and became even more eager to undergo every tribulation, battle, and temptation for the name of Christ, so that Christ might number him in the next life with those who were dressed in bright white clothes and who stand about the throne of Christ joyfully and ceaselessly glorifying him. Now, beloved, think about the great joy of those Christians who suffer here and pass their lives in asceticism and hardships. The words they will chant in heaven illustrate the immeasurable gladness they will have then 
as they do even now. We do not always chant, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, alleluia, except during the joyful feasts of Christ. What I am saying is this, those who pass their lives here with great tribulations and temptations for the sake of Christ will be with Christ there and will see him face to face, keeping sweet company with him, as a loving son keeps company with his loving father. Christ will then be their every comfort and joy. They will not hunger there as they hungered here on account of Christ's commandments. As it says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. They will be filled not with food and drink, but with Christ's glory. As the prophet, king, and divine David says, I shall be satisfied with beholding your glory. They will not thirst there as they willfully thirsted here in order to subdue their bodies. They will not burn there from the burning of tribulations and temptations as they burned here from tribulations and temptations as gold in the fire, thus showing their true love for Christ to be brighter than burning and purified silver. For Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, will shepherd them there in his kingdom and will guide them into the evergreen and fragrant sheepfolds of paradise, wherein the rivers of delight flow and the refreshing springs of the pleasurable waters of immortal life gush. The beloved John again says in his Apocalypse, quote, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. May it be that God also gives us in this life great tribulation in our hearts and many tears to our eyes, so that every tear may be wiped away from our eyes there in his kingdom, and so that our hearts may enjoy the true and eternal joy. May Christ our God count us worthy of this joy, to whom belongs glory and power under the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 14 concerning how the mind that is cleansed by ceaseless noetic prayer of the heart, which is the mother of tears, knows which thoughts that enter the soul are from God and which are from the demons. Also concerning mourning. Bless, Father. As soon as God's grace descends upon the soul and rests there, the pure and watchful mind knows that grace has entered and settled in the soul. The mind has its place and seat in the middle of the forehead, the highest point of the body, as if in a high watchtower, from which it sees everything from every direction. It knows right away if something is approaching the soul, and quickly informs the intellect to go with it immediately, and see whether that which is approaching the city, we mean the soul, is from God or from the demons. The meeting together and contemplation of the intellect in the mind is called discernment. And this discernment is true because the intellect, together with the mind, exactly and correctly judges and examines the various effects, the thoughts and attacks that slipped past the detection of the mind and intellect have on the soul and the body senses. The judgment made by the mind and intellect is correct and good, for it says, two are better than one. The mind and intellect leave good and beneficial thoughts alone and grant them free and unhindered, unhindered entrance into the soul, but they reject and fight against evil and deceptive thoughts. When the mind is healthy, 
we mean when it has been purified and refined by abstaining from pleasurable food and drink, by abstaining from too much sleep and food, by the ceaseless prayer of the heart and attentiveness, by the constant shedding of many tears, by divinely illuminated self-control and silence, by pureness of soul and body, by brilliant humility and humbleness, by great patience in various temptations, and when it is illumined by frequent communing in the immaculate mysteries of the Lord, the mind quickly knows what is passing through it or what enters the soul by another way. For the thief, he says, does not enter the sheepfold by the door but enters by another way. And it knows if it is something divine or demonic. If it is something divine, it informs the prepared heart to accept it immediately and properly. But if it is something demonic, it informs and convinces the heart not to open any door to it, that is, not to accept it. It knows from where both types of thoughts come. For when a demonic thought passes through the mind, it causes disturbances and upsets the condition and stillness of the soul and of the body's senses, just as the wolf disturbs the stillness of the sheep when it enters their pasture and sheepfold. That is why it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. When God's grace, I mean the comfort of the Holy Spirit, descends from above upon a person coming down from the Father of lights, it first passes by the mind's guard. It pauses there for just a moment to greet the mind, and then it straightway enters the heart faster than lightning. Just as when there is lightning, you see the flash of the lightning in the dark black clouds, where the lightning flashes with great and incomprehensible frequency, appearing like a bright and fiery rope, so also it is with God's grace. For when it greets the mind and appears to it, the mind recognizes its appearance and greeting in a very mystical way. And when God's grace moves towards the heart and approaches it, the mind immediately knows with what unexplainable speed the power and energy of divine grace passes from the mind of man to his heart. When God's grace reaches the heart, the pure heart recognizes the approaching grace and, it, and its repose in it, that is, the heart knows that God's grace has taken up residence in it. For the same energy of grace that occurred in the mind also occurs in the heart. When God's grace comes upon the heart and touches it, the heart's hardness immediately softens as wax melts before a fire, and from then on joyful tears well up within the heart. This is called joyful mourning. This mourning consoles the heart, gladdens the soul, raises the intellect to God, sweetens the mind, makes the face wonderfully cheerful, drives away despondency, cuts off the bodily passions, kills the soul's passions, engenders fear of God, and protects against every evil and sin like a fortress. As long as mighty mourning dwells in the heart of man, the demons will not dare approach, because the mourning will burn their wickedness as logs are consumed by fire. And the sin the scheming dem demons plan to set up in the heart will fail, just as wet tinder cannot be ignited no matter how much someone tries. Therefore the demons do not approach a mourning heart or draw near to it. Even if they approach the heart driven by their great evil, impudence, and envy, they will accomplish nothing. As long as mourning remains in the heart, the heart will constantly weep tears, and the ascetic's tears will exceed the water filling the font in which he was baptized. 
Whoever has this mourning must take great care then not to lose it, for it is lost, rather it departs on its own, when the mind is not attentive and when the heart is not praying. This is why the Lord says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Truly, the soul falls into great temptation when mourning is absent. For when a person is strongly tempted and attacked from every direction by the good-hating demons, he is easily defeated and mortally wounded when he is without mourning. Mourning departs, but just how it departs no one knows or understands, just as no one can understand how the days of his life pass. The person who has lost mourning knows only that it has departed, just as every person knows the days of his life have passed. But just how they have passed, no one can comprehend. When mourning has left a person, let him ask God for it again. For as long as mourning is absent, a person is deprived of great and heavenly gifts, as his soul becomes as poor as a destitute widow. When mourning returns, then a person understands that he has been without those gifts and what harm this lack has caused him. Let a person who has lost mourning on account of his carelessness ask God for it, with true humility and modesty. Let him show God a sorrowful face, an afflicted heart and mind. Let him spread all of his soul's tribulation before God, and all of his heart's suffering. Let him pour out his entire supplication before God, deploring his condition, as the prophet King David says, I shall pour out my supplication before him, I shall declare my affliction in his presence. Let him once again receive the grace of God, blaming himself as the sole cause for the departure of that blessed morning. Let him promise God that he will be more careful from now on. Let him show God sincere repentance. Just as mourning not only consoles the heart and soul when it is present, but also all the other powers of the soul and heart, and even the body itself receives comfort, let all of these bow down and supplicate God for mourning when it is absent. Let each do its own duty. Let the body suffer hardship through labor. Let the heart be crushed through sighs and the force of the prayer. Let the soul put on grief as a bride puts on black when she is widowed. Let the intellect and mind accompany the soul to the throne of the Godhead. And then let the soul fall down weeping with extreme reverence like a modest and sorrowful virgin before the feet of its Lord Jesus Christ, its pure and incorrupt bridegroom. Having sweetly kissed his feet, let the soul tightly grab his most pure and inexpressible beautiful outer garment and gently gaze at his sweet and incomprehensibly divine face. Then let the soul slavishly beseech him with fervent supplication, saying the following with fear and trembling mixed with love. A prayer. Remember, O Lord, that you became perfect man for the sake of man, and save me out of your love for man. Do not reject, O Master, my poor supplication for the sake of your all-holy name, but grant me your comfort. O my Creator, do not be wroth with me, the prodigal, for the sake of the throne of your divinity. O my sweet God, send me your rich mercies for the sake of your inexpressible glory. Mercifully sprinkle me, your servant, with your rich grace from your holy dwelling place, for I am greatly afflicted when I am without your grace. Do not be wroth with me, O Holy One, for saying so many words before you. For you, O Lord, know very well that I say these things out of my great bitterness. 
because I am embittered on account of the hardness of my heart. O compassionate one, forgive all my faults, even from my youth. Forgive me whatever I have done to grieve you, my sweet God and Master, and your Holy Spirit. O you who do not remember wrongs, turn your face away from my sins and wipe away all my transgressions. My Lord, create in me a pure heart and establish a right spirit in my depths. Do not cast me away from your face, my Christ, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. For when you, Lord, my Lord, console me with your Holy Spirit, and I am sweetened by your grace, I am able to serve you with all my strength and zeal. Yes, heavenly King, my sweet Jesus, Lord of glory, glorified one in the council of the saints, I, the wretch, ask you again and again to hear me, your lowly and worthless servant, and give me once again your grace and the joy of your salvation that you justly took away on account of my innumerable sins. I beg you, Master, establish me by the grace of your all-holy spirit, so that he who constantly attacks me, your humble servant, in so many ways, may not strike me any longer, for he charges at me like a vicious and arrogant lion. For I entrust to you, O friend of man, my entire life and the hope of my salvation. For all the powers of the heavens praise you, and to you they offer up glory unto the ages of ages. Amen. When a person has said these things to God in a silent voice that is with his spirit, while bowing the face of his heart and body, and at the same time having his mind immersed in the abyss of humility, he will notice that his heart has softened and that his salvation is near. For the Lord drew near him in order to destroy and dispel by his invisible presence any hardness and opposition that prevented the soul from having a vivid divine vision of its God, and that also deprived it of mourning. If hardness returns to the heart so that it does not weep, and the soul does not mourn for its bridegroom, and the mind cannot see its unseen creator because it is calloused, let him not despair and cease from his good struggle. But let him greatly reproach himself every moment, and he will shortly see God's comfort in his crushed heart. According to the saying, the Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. When the Lord invisibly approaches him, he will see God's grace working in him again. Tears will again easily flow. His heart will be at rest. His thoughts will be at peace, and his soul will be made new again as when it was first created. Your youth, the psalmist says, is renewed like the eagles. A person is assured that God accepted the repentance of his crushed heart like a pleasing fragrance from these spiritual signs. From then on, let him joyfully and humbly practice the Lord's commandments. To our God be the glory and majesty forever. Amen. Discourse 15 concerning how one tests by means of noetic and compunction of prayer every kind of vision and thought that appears to be from God, whether it is truly from God or from the demons. Bless, Father. Beloved, if someone gives you a gold or silver coin with the king's image and writing on it, and on the surface it appears identical with the other royal golden coins, you cannot be sure that it does not contain false gold unless you test it with some inspecting device to see whether the inside is real gold or counterfeit. If you do not test it because you do not know how, but you show it to someone whom you know to be very experienced and skilled in such things in order for him to test it, 
he will be able to tell you if your coin is good or counterfeit. But if you show it to an inexperienced person with no skill in such matters like yourself, you will remain unsure about the coin's authenticity. And if the inexperienced person tells you it is good and you believe him even though he is wrong, you will hold on to the counterfeit coin, suffering harm from his advice instead of benefit. Likewise, O humble one, you must carefully test things on a spiritual level, as you will see further down. Concerning the visions your soul sometimes sees that appear to be from God, you cannot be sure whether they come truly from God or from the demons. And for this reason there is a great war and much uncertainty in your mind as to whether the visions are from the demons or not. For the petty demons have a habit of showing visions to a weak-minded person as if they were from God in order to deceive him little by little until they cast him into the dreadful labyrinth of their incurable deception and manifold wickedness. This will happen if he accepts the visions they show him as coming from God without carefully examining them, completely and unquestioningly believing that he had them on account of his own effort. But you, beloved, whenever you see such a vision, do not give it quick entrance to your soul without suspicion, neither receive it into your heart willingly and carelessly, completely believing that it is from God until you have tested it with the ineffable, infallible, and pure inspector of noetic and compunctionate prayer, or until you share it with some spirit-bearing experienced father who you know has knowledge of such things and can solve your question and free you from uncertainty because of the things he has done, learned, and experienced. If you do not immediately accept the vision until you are sure that it is from God, know that you do not sin because you fear that it might be an assault from the devil or some deception concerning this the blessed apostle says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. For oft times, things that seem to be from God are actually from the demons. Just as some people appear outwardly to be holy, they are actually worse than demons inwardly. And the Savior criticized the fraudulence of such people, saying, Woe to you hypocrites! The crafty demons do this, so you will give them free and unchecked entrance into your city, that is, into your soul. After entering your soul through craftiness and setting their foot there, that is, after taking over and capturing the dispositions of your soul, they can easily also capture the dispositions of your body. Then the demons suddenly take off the disguise of sheep's faces and reveal the form and ferocity of the wolf to your soul, using it to pollute your heart with impure desire. Furthermore, they try to throw you into committing physical acts of the devil, which would never have happened to you if the vision you saw were from God. When you see visions, conduct the spiritual test in the following way. If you find yourself spiritually at rest the day you saw a vision and not troubled at all by your passions, and your mind is also still and undisturbed by the contrary waves that usually upset it, or your heart, too, is in a peaceful state that day, and spontaneously fills with compunction, with no effort at every spiritual word. Indeed, it fills with compunction at the sight of the vision. If I say these things occur, and you find yourself in such a state, know that the vision was from God, and you should have no doubt about this. If, however, none of these things happen within you after seeing a vision that seemed to be from God, and for this reason you question it and wonder if it was from the demons, then, beloved, perform the following test. 
gather all the attention of your intellect into the depths of your heart and noetically pray there from the depths, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Say nothing else and do your best to not let your mind think about, inspect, and occupy itself with the vision you saw. If your mind starts to think about the vision on its own, cut it off quickly and bring it back to the prayer of your heart so your prayer can be presented pure before God. Praying thus with humility and extreme reverence towards God, if the vision was from God and you will feel within your heart a spiritual skip with spiritual tears, when without even wanting it, the vision you saw enters your memory. Simultaneously with this sweet, unspeakable, spiritual and divine skipping of your heart, and simultaneously with those spiritually sweet tears, you will feel that your every spiritual and bodily disposition is calmed, quieted, soothed, peaceful, and at rest. And together with this calm disposition, the great flame of the love of your Lord is ignited that day. Burning from that flame, when suddenly you feel your insides greatly burning from the love of your Lord, you let out a deep cry to your God, howling at him like dogs sometimes howl after losing their master. Then, with a sad, whimpering, and compunctionate voice, you say to God, while weeping, Where are you, my God, my God? And will you not bring me to where you are even an hour sooner, you who are my sweet love? Do you not feel sorry for me, my God, my God, that my insides are burning like a flame ignited by the unquenchable desire of your love that ignited within me like a sparking furnace? Never, my God, never will that burning flame within my heart be quenched, though I am apart from you, being in this world's valley of tears. What refreshment, O Lord, does the thirsty traveler receive from just thinking about water? He receives no refreshment, O Lord, but it makes him thirstier. Just as my soul, O Lord, that greatly thirsts after you, does not receive refreshment by thinking about you or from your visions, but it is consumed by even greater thirst when you, my sweet Jesus, do not take me to where you are, you who are the refreshing spring that satisfies my thirsty soul. O Lord, what happens to an exiled son who loves his father, mother, brothers, and country when he receives a letter from his beloved parents and family? Could it be, O Lord, that he does not drench the letter with his tears as he is reading it, could it be that his insides do not burn as he sees the sweet names of his parents and brothers written on the letter? Could it be that he does not sigh from his depths as he thinks about his family? Could it be that he does not wail from his heart as he thinks about his friends and his country? If this, O Lord, happens to a carnal person, how much more does it happen to a spiritual person when you, our heavenly God and Father, visit our poor and wretched existence with the grace of your sweet divine sights, visions, and revelations, as if they were letters from you. For when, O Lord, the grace of those divine visions is imprinted in an unexplainable manner on the heart of one of your faithful servants, your divine grace immediately makes the heart burn from the yearning, compassion, and eros of your love, and it makes his eyes warm from the tears of your desire when he lifts up the eyes of his soul towards you, his sweet God and heavenly Father. Lord, Lord, look down from heaven, from the holy house of your inexpressible glory, and look upon the face of my humble heart. 
which, having been wounded by the sweet arrow of the spiritual and divine eros of your dear love, has melted like wax from great compunction from the moment it saw your divine vision. My heart was given your divine vision like a letter from heaven, and when my mind opened it and read it to my soul, my humble soul straightway clung to you. For my soul thirsted after you, as your meek and sacred prophet David thirsted for you. Your prophet, O Lord, the divine David's soul thirsted for you so much because of the divine manifestations, visions, sights, and revelations that you disclosed to him in certain times and seasons and particular circumstances, that his thirst for you could never, as long as he lived, be quenched before he came to you and before he drank the refreshing water of your sweet inebriation and enjoyment. And so, crying like a small lion from the depths of his soul, he sought to see you face to face, his living master and God, and said, As the deer longs for the springs of waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the mighty and living God. When shall I come and appear before the face of God? I suffer the same thing now, O Lord, and my poor soul melts because of its thirst for you. It seems to me that this thirst will slowly consume my insides and will not leave me until that blessed time comes for my departure from this world and until I come to you, my sweet Master and God. May it be, O Lord, if you love me, and I am convinced that you do, that this might happen for me even one hour sooner so that my soul's thirst for you might be satisfied. Amin, may it be, may it be. From such sighs, signs, and other similar ones you understand, beloved, and are convinced that your vision was from God. If things like this do not happen to you, beloved, even though you frequently prayed to God from the depths of your heart about the matter and placed your supplication and humility before the goodness of the Lord, Know that your vision was from the demons, because nothing like what we said above is found in demonic visions. In fact, exactly the opposite happens when your vision is from the demons. Listen to how this is. God is completely good, completely loving, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, pure, and pure love. As God is such, he also wishes for you to imitate his attributes. Namely, God wants you also to become good, loving, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, pure, and have pure love for your neighbor. But the devil is completely wicked and evil, and since he is such, he wants you to imitate his wickedness and evil. After you see the vision, beloved, if you notice that your soul suddenly rejoices in God's attributes and your heart is filled with compunction and extreme calm for God's attributes, know that your vision is from God. Since it is from God, your spirit is gladdened by God's attributes, and you are filled with a longing from heaven to imitate as much as you can your heavenly God and Father's attributes. All you want to do are those things that please and gladden your heavenly God and Father. But if after you see the vision, your soul does not rejoice in God's attributes, and your heart is not filled with compunction from them, and you experience no spiritual desire to imitate your heavenly God and Father's attributes, Know that your vision is from the demons. When your vision is a deception, if you very carefully examine the depths of your spiritual and bodily dispositions, you will find that they secretly, inconspicuously, and covertly incline towards the devil's attributes and will. 
wherein lies all the counsel of the demons of deception, in order to pull you towards them, slowly but surely, without you even noticing. And just as when someone puts water under your straw, as the proverb says, you do not realize the water is, is there getting the straw wet, so will it be with you, O humble one, if you are not extremely careful. Beloved, you should also carefully test every type of seemingly good thought with your compunctionate prayer to see whether it is really from God or from the devil. If the thought is from God, the more you, you burnish it with the pain of the heart, and the, the more it will shine within you like a pearl. And the more you set the thought on fire with your lengthy and compunctionate prayer, which you offer to Christ from the depths so that he may take it from you, the more the thought glows because of your prayer and shines within your heart, just as the more a goldsmith purifies and polishes pure gold, the more it shines. If, however, your thought is from the demons, as soon as it is set on fire by the contrite prayer of your heart, you will see it completely disappear. If it does not immediately disappear, it will gradually lose strength, eventually go away. When the holy and ascetic fathers were attacked by a seemingly good thought, they tested it with the sacred prayer. If the thought was from God, the prayer made it stronger. But if the thought was from the demons, the prayer immediately destroyed it. Or finally, if the thought was a, from a ruling demon and did not immediately disappear, nevertheless, the sacred prayer of the heart gradually exterminated it from the heart. Therefore, beloved, when you ceaselessly pray the compunctionate prayer of the heart from your inner depths, then you will not only have nothing to fear from the demons that tear at you with sin thousands of times, but you will also have nothing to fear when those same demons attack your soul with deception, that is, with seeming virtue, tens of thousands of times, wanting to ensnare you through this method more easily. When you constantly pray noetically in your secret heart, then you have the name of Christ within you, and it will not allow any demonic wickedness to touch your heart or approach your soul. That is why the prophet says, A thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, yet it shall not come near you. To our God be the glory, power, praise, and majesty, now and forever unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 16 Concerning that a crushed heart scourges the demons more than every harsh punishment and burns up all their machinations like firewood. Bless, Father. 1. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer so that Satan's power will be completely stamped out of your heart. 2. Groan with bitter sighs from your depths with each prayer of your heart so that you will escape from the bronchial labyrinth and traps of the devil. 3. Cry to God from the center of your heart, so that your cry will reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. 4. Cry to your Christ with the silent cry of your heart, so that he will judge the demons that wrong you and fight the devils that attack you with the lightning of his Godhead. 5. Just as the devil, your bitter enemy, constantly fights and tempts you, so also should you constantly sigh to your Christ, so that he will quickly come to your aid. 6. Always fight back strongly against the deceiver, Satan, with the crushing of your heart, so that in turn his crafty head will be crushed. 
7. Just as a man is fearful of grabbing a burning hot and sparking piece of iron, so also does the devil fear a crushed heart, for a crushed heart powerfully obliterates his wickedness. 8. When a fantasy from the devil appears to a relaxed heart that is not crushed, the heart receives it at once and the image of the fantasy becomes deeply imprinted. But a fantasy has no place in a crushed heart. 9. Wherever there is a crushed heart, every satanic ploy is dispelled and every demonic activity is scorched. 10. A crushed heart brings down the arrogance of Lucifer and lifts up the one with the crushed heart to heaven. 11. Beloved, crush the arrogance of Lucifer by the constant crushing of your heart, so that the Lord Almighty will crown your soul. 12. As soon as you crush your heart, the wickedness of the demons will disappear and the ray of God's righteousness will shine in your soul. 13. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will see your soul rush fearlessly at the devil like an angel of the Lord, once it has been clothed with the power of the Most High. 14. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that sin will be stamped out of your heart. 15. Not only does a demon, which is a servant of Satan, flee from the presence of a crushed heart, but also Satan himself, the chief of demons, flees faster than lightning from the presence of a heart that has been crushed by the prayer. 16. Just as a man will not enter a blazing furnace, so also the devil will not enter a heart set ablaze by forceful prayer. 17. Just as you cannot count the number of times a bee's wings flap when it is flying, so also you cannot count or comprehend the fleeting steps of Satan as he flees from the presence of a heart crushed by the prayer. 18. Just as a sentry recoils before an illustrious and brave soldier, so do demons recoil before a person who constantly crushes his heart with the prayer. 19. When a demon is ready to approach someone in order to capture his mind through deception, it first prepares itself for a gateway, a getaway, so that it will be able to escape the blistering lightning of a heart that has been crushed by the prayer. 20. As soon as a demon sees a person begin to crush his heart with the prayer, it does not dilly-dally. Neither does it scrutinize the crushed heart, but it is immediately shattered as it flees from the person's presence. 21. Just as an orator who is surrounded by flames does not discourse about fire, but is concerned with how he will save himself from the blaze, so also a demon, when it sees a heart ablaze from the prayer, is not concerned with the condition of the heart, but is concerned with how to escape. 22. A rabbit that is hunted by a dog has some hope that it will survive on account of its swiftness. Yet, when a bloodhound hunts it, though the rabbit runs as fast as it can, it becomes the bloodhound's prey. In like manner, a demon that is fought against by just any virtue has hope that it might escape the scourge. But when the flaming sword of contrite prayer hunts it, it knows that the lightning bolt of the prayer will quickly reach it and scatter the bones of its treachery by the mouth of Hades. 23. Sparrows do not fear an eagle's attack as much as demons fear the attack of a heart crushed by the prayer. 24. 
Limestone that is added to a fire is not consumed as fast as a crushed heart consumes and burns every demonic ploy. 25. Did the devil see a heart wounded from the crushing of the prayer? He was immediately reminded of Christ's wounds, which he bore for the sake of man, and so the devil was frightened and recoiled. 26. Beloved, crush the devil with the crushing of your heart, so that you will enter victorious into the joy of your Lord. 27. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan who deceives you will be smashed into smithereens. 28. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will put to fight, flight the one who lies in wait, scheming how to ensnare you in the net of sensuality. 29. Do not fear the crushing of your heart, so that the demons will fear you. For the demons do not fear a virtuous man as much as they fear him when he crushes his heart with the prayer. 30. Just as a snake fears the nails of a cat more than any other threat, so also Satan fears the crushing of the heart more than any other virtue. 31. The nails of a cat are lethal to a snake, while the nails of the devil are seven times more lethal to man's soul, but the crushing of the heart is seventy-seven times more lethal to the devil. 32. As soon as Satan heard mournful sighs rising up from the depths of the heart, he turned quickly to flee, for he knew that a heart crushed by the prayer was nearby, and therefore also Christ. 33. Whenever there is a crushed heart, the Lord is nearby, and so the prophet said, The Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. 34. As soon as a wolf heard the sounds of dogs, it immediately fled because it knew a shepherd and guardian of the sheep was nearby. 35. Mice heard the sound of a cat, so they immediately became still in their holes and nests and briefly stopped their stealthy thievery. 36. Did Lucifer's phalanxes hear sorrowful sighs of a heart? They immediately retracted their schemes and became still. 37. Did the demons hear someone sighing from the center of his heart? They disappeared from there because they feared the Lord's retribution. 38. When a thief hears the firing of rifles nearby, he does not look to steal any more, but how he will escape by fleeing and hiding. 39. When Satan hears someone roaring because of the groaning of his heart, as the prophet says, while shedding tears and seeking his creator, he does not look to steal anything else from that soul, that is, attack it with some passion, but he looks to see if he can somehow save himself. 40. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan's throne and arrogance will be crushed. 41. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan will fear you and tremble when he sees you as a perfect and fully armed soldier of Christ. 42. Crush your heart with the prayer so that you will humiliate prideful and arrogant Satan and stomp on him. 43. Did the devil hear a raucous voice because of the crushing of the heart? His power immediately dissolved because of his fear, and the flame of his treachery was extinguished because of his grief. 44. Did Satan see a stream of tears on the face of a person with a crushed heart? He was immediately scalded in that heart. 45. Did you spit blood because of the extreme force of the prayer of your heart? 
you cast caustic limestone in the midst of Hades. 46. Did you sigh from your depths? You pierced Lucifer's eye with an arrow. 47. Did you remember Jesus your fashioner and weep on account of your joy? Scalding rain fell on Lucifer's head. 48. Did you call on your master Christ from the heart? You paralyzed Satan. 49. Did your eyes see an icon of Christ in the Panagia, and did your soul rejoice? Innumerable thoughts bombard Satan and swirl around Lucifer. 50. Did you call on the sweet name of Christ and the pure mother of God from your depths? You plunged your invisible enemy into nether regions. 51. Did your heart ache from the prayer? A stomachache gripped Satan. 52. Did your strength ebb because of the forceful prayer? Lucifer's strength dwindled. 53. Did you patiently persist in the prayer of the heart? Your soul beheld the Lord's glory as divine glory. 54. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? Your soul was fed by divine eros, and your heart mystically felt the inexpressible sweetness of Christ, your creator. 55. Did you crush your heart with the prayer and fall asleep? You saw a divine and consoling vision while you slept. 56. Did you crush your heart with the prayer until it ached? A stream of tears suddenly flowed from your eyes. 57. Did your heart ache from the force of the prayer? Your heart felt divine protection and grace. 58. Was your heart pained and cut by the forceful prayer? You quickly saw a divine vision with your spiritual eyes. 59. Were you fearful for your life because of the aching of your crushed heart? A hidden mystery of God was revealed to you. 60. Did you experience the grief and bitter pain of your crushed heart? Your soul truly tasted the sweetness of the Lord's almighty kingdom. 61. Did you lose your heart because of the force of the prayer? You saved your soul and gained paradise. 62. Did you give blood from your heart? Your soul received the Holy Spirit. 63. Did you sweat from your anguish as you prayed from your heart? You imitated the sweat of Christ, which became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as he prayed. 64. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? You raised the horn of your soul and crushed the horns of Lucifer. 65. Did a dry cough seize your chest because of the force of the prayer? Satan became severely ill, anguished by your anguish. 66. Was your voice cut off because of the immeasurable force of the prayer of your heart? Your soul sang a heavenly, incomprehensible, and sweet song. 67. Did your voice lose its tone because of the crushing of your heart? You heard an unbelievable angelic song sweetly sung to Jesus your fashioner. 68. Did you pray to Christ from the depths of your heart? Satan plugged his ears, unable to stand listening to you. 69. Did you sigh from your depths? Satan lost his mind because of his fear. 70. Did you send God a cry against the devil from your heart? You prepared a dreadful thunderbolt against Satan the deceiver. 71. Did your heart lose its contrition? The flesh marched against your soul. 
Did you crush your heart with the prayer? The soul marched against the flesh. 72. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? Your soul became roused against the devil and hardened against sin. 73. When Lucifer beheld a crushed heart, he quickly recoiled because his strength was paralyzed by it. 74. Was your heart crushed by the prayer? The Lord's Spirit rejoiced in your soul, and Lucifer's battalion was vexed. 75. As soon as you crushed your heart with the prayer, zeal for virtue immediately ignited within it, and from that a longing for the Lord. 76. O humble one, crush your heart with the prayer, so that the Spirit of the Lord will renew your insides, and renew a right spirit in the depths of me, says the prophet. 77. Beloved, crush and humble your proud heart with the prayer, so that your soul will be loved by Jesus, your fashioner, who is truly meek and humble of heart. 78. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will mock the devil, the president of wickedness, reckoning his arrows as those of a little child. 79. He who crushes his heart with the prayer sees Satan as an ant and does not fear him. But he who does not crush his heart sees Satan as a lion and always fears him. 80. Did you violently crush your heart with the prayer? Both your body and soul quickly experienced rest. For the star of dispassion and purity always shines where there is a profoundly crushed heart. 81. Beloved, crush your heart with the prayer so that your soul will converse with God's angels, which is truly something blessed and desirable and very difficult to come by and attain. 82. O humble one, crush your heart with the prayer so that your body will be pure and your mind watchful. Purity and watchfulness are like two wings so that your soul may fly freely toward heavenly things. 83. O least of monks, constantly crush your heart with the prayer, so that the eyes of your mind will be illumined, with which you will behold the invisible things of paradise, just as you see physical things with your bodily eyes. 84. O monk, gather your intellect into your inner depths, where the throne of your heart is, and when you have fixed it there like a vigilant watchman, Repeat the prayer from your depths until your intellect is inexpressibly sweetened by the grace of the prayer. Then you will see it immaterially fly to the heavens towards God, where its true rest lies. <laughs>